Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for August 1st, 2019, the Dark Psychic Force Edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm here in Washington, D.C. And once again with me, now a sort of semi-permanent resident, perhaps, of the nation's capital, is John Dickerson of CBS 60 Minutes. Hello, John. <laughs> Hello, David. Don't confuse people. I'm just I'm just here working on the book. John's worried someone's going to make him do something. Um, uh, John, John is not a semi-permanent resident. He's a, he's a Gothamite now. That other voice, of course, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. And you're not in, in New Haven. Maine. You're in, no, in I'm Maine. in Maine, the lovely place in Maine. That's so nice. I yeah. am jealous. Emily is joining us via Skype, so we will see how that connection goes. On today's GabFest, who won the second Democratic Debates, why did they win them? Maybe no one won. Let's just talk about the second Democratic debates. Then Trump nominates a partisan hack, a sinister partisan hack, as his director of national intelligence. What could possibly go wrong there? And then the heat waves that have been causing misery in Europe and across the U.S., how they affect human life on this planet, what they portend for the future, what they portend for politics, and more. Plus, we will, of course, have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, listeners, that we have a live show coming up in the Twin Cities in St. Paul, Minnesota, Wednesday, September 18th at the Fitzgerald Theater. We are going to do a live show, our first one in the Twin Cities. You can get tickets and more information at slate.com live. We would love to see you there. We're really looking forward to that show. And uh, it's going to be great. So go to slate.com live. Join us September 18th in St. Paul. So we had our second round of Democratic debates. Again, a two-night affair, uh, randomly sorted. We had first night, which had Warren and Sanders and Delaney and Hickenlooper. A second night that had Biden and Harris and Booker and Yang and Gabbard. And Michael Bennett was on one night or the other. I can't remember which one. He was on uh, Wednesday night. Uh, that's the second night. Yeah. That was the second night. Um so, John, it, there was a, it, they were long. The debates were long. There's so many people on stage. It's kind of hard to keep track of it, hard to moderate them, uh, hard to sort of pay attention. Were there, uh, were there important moments in either debate in the way there clearly was in the first one right. around right. busting with Harris and Biden? Yeah, although we should figure out what we mean by important because I think one of the things I think about with these debates in, in particular is – is to make sure that we don't go to McDonald's and say, where's the Chateaubriand, right? They are limited in usefulness and they are they can only do so much. You've got a thousand candidates. Um, 
the television networks are, uh, you know, going for ratings. They're going for elevating their their anchors, uh, and we uh, people can look their nose down, uh, look down their nose at that. But um, they the, these debates attract a lot of people watching because people do like to see a kind of more, for lack of a better word, showbiz type environment, um, or else. Uh, we would see them flocking to the super crunchy and dry and boring ways you can learn about these candidates and their positions, and there are lots of them. But people don't. They flock to this. So if you're going to flock to it because it's a kind of a dramatic event, then um, I think it doesn't make sense to then uh, overly criticize it for for its excessive drama, although <laughs> there, are plenty, <laughs> there are plenty, although one could spend the show – uh, uh, on that, but I just—I guess my point is to, to to what in what context is it important? I think mostly I've been thinking about these debates in terms of their. Um, for me, the only thing that they're useful for, frankly, is they're a pressure test. Um, and candidates, uh, one of the jobs of being a president is you—you you are under pressure in a very weird environment where <clears throat> you don't always get all the, uh, the amount of time you'd like to to have to talk about things. You don't always get hit with the thing you're expecting and you have to know how to react. Is that all the job is about? No. Is it part of what the job's about? Yes. And so this is a chance to test for that. But I think that's about all it is. I think that if you were trying to figure out what the state of what the debate is over health care in the Democratic Party, you left far more confused. People complained about the framing uh, of the CNN moderators. The candidates chose to to jump on that framing, as, as Drew Altman pointed out, as the president of, of Kaiser, um, they chose to grab that framing and use it to distinguish themselves from the all, other candidates. What they could have done is ignore the framing and talk about Donald Trump. So those are some initial thoughts. Emily, so John, John did not give it. Yeah, John, did, no. Can we not jump on the moderators first? Can we? The moderators are not what we're okay, here fine. for. You what go is, ahead. What? You frame the question. I'll let you frame the question, and then I'll respond docilely. Is that a word? You don't I'll need to docile. respond docilely. You just need to. It's. Just, I don't. Why would we have a conversation about there are twenty presidential candidates up there who we're getting a real introduction to for the first time? And of course, the moderators are going to, you know, you know do you know better or worse. But like, it's not about the moderators. So, what do you have to say about the candidates and what you learned from them? Is there anything you learned? Anything you came away from? It with any new new sense data for you i think the framing did matter and i sorry i'm going back to my own original framing i do blame the moderators because i felt like they were fronting and emphasizing the most um polarizing aspects of the democratic debate on healthcare and immigration without it in a way that made it hard to see that what we were arguing over is like uh, you know, 15% of a of, of story in which there's a lot of agreement among the Democratic candidates. Now, I mean, John's right. Like, they could have reframed it to try to make that clear. And I think some of them did. I think Buttigieg did that on the first yeah. night. And there were also people who did that on the second night, though I can't remember who there were because there were so many of them. Yeah. That was frustrating to me. I think that Nobody screwed up. I guess if you think of this in terms of the stress test for the front runners, Warren and Sanders, I thought both did well on the first night. Now they teamed up and their, you know, their interrogators were people who are much lower on the food chain, like um, Congressman Delaney and whoever else was like kind of low. Oh, I guess like Hickenlooper went after them. 
And so there's this mismatch where it feels like, sure, they passed the stress test, but they weren't up against the Harris and Biden who have a different, a somewhat different view of healthcare, where there is perhaps more of a role to continue employer-based or private insurance. And we didn't hear that sort of fully joined argument. On the second night, it was Harris and Biden who were under attack in different ways. And I think Biden did a better job of responding. He seemed like he was better prepared for being attacked. He had some uh, words that he had gotten ready to say. That was a low bar, but it was important. Malarkey, yeah. But it was important that he had some comebacks. And then I think Harris started lecturing him. That was like a little much for me. And then when it was her turn to get attacked for her record as a prosecutor, I did not think she came across as well as she could have. The person who I thought stood out the second night was Cory Booker. And that was sort of unexpected to me because I kind of have written him off, though I don't really know why he hasn't taken off. But he seemed like he had some moral clarity going for him. Now, I may have felt that way because his attack on Biden over the 1994 crime bill and Biden's record on crime in the 90s generally is one that I'm sympathetic with. But I thought that was like something where, okay, if you had an actual memorable moment for that second night, maybe it was him. Yeah, I thought his I thought he had to answer David's original question to me, which I didn't do. Um, To the extent that we're scoring this on moments, which we all agree is neither what the job is nor what perhaps we should all be focusing on uh, as we seek to uh, take collective action to address the biggest problems of our facing our planet. Um, nevertheless, if we're going to score it on that, it felt like he did a version of what um, Kamala Harris did in the first rounds of debates. And he nicely, you know, he spent the first three answers basically saying, Democrats shouldn't tear each other down. This is only giving uh, ammunition to Donald Trump and we shouldn't do this and we shouldn't tear each other down. And then when it came to Joe Biden, he went, Bow and, and and walloped him over the head. Uh, I I was interested in the same way you were, Emily, because I think this gets to this connects with a larger meta conversation that these debates kind of bounce up against and and are about. How bold should your ideas be, uh, and and how much does that boldness move um, what's possible in the world? And then how much of that boldness is a signal? You're never going to get it done, but you're sending a signal to voters that you really care about these issues. What that connects to, in my mind, to Joe Biden and to Kamala Harris and and to Cory Booker is you have all these grand ideas for the world. Okay, great. Now you've got to work in the world as it is. And Joe Biden is obviously uh, having a very difficult time, harder than probably he should if he wants to be a nominee of a party, explaining what it was like to make decisions in 1994 in that environment and then uh, Kirsten Gillibrand uh, asked him about something he wrote in 1981. There are compromises in a complicated system where you have to reach uh, consensus and compromise. So you got to make an argument for that if you've been in the Senate as long as he has and he didn't really have one. When Kamala Harris was attacked, that's essentially what she said about her job. And then she – it was interesting. After uh, criticizing Biden in kind of a perfect world, she then defended herself by saying, hey, when you have to make tough calls – you know, sometimes it ain't pretty. And and Booker said the same thing about Newark, which um, was also kind of a contradiction of the way he'd been using the perfect world to frame Biden. I think that's all a part of a big piece, which is what do we want to hear in elections? And then what do we expect from actually governing? I think uh, I, I want to make two points on following up on that. First is uh, I, I thought the most interesting kind of intellectual uh, contrast over the course of the two nights was really between Warren and Buttigieg. And so the Warren had this exchange with Delaney 
uh, I can't believe I have to say that guy's name. That guy is like a person who's relevant in this. But anyway, in exchange with he Delaney. He did a good job, though. He was fine. No, he was fine. He was fine. He was fine. Anyway. Yes. And he also teed up okay, the okay. answer you're yes. about to right. say. So. Okay. okay. So anyway, so in which Warren banged back at Delaney and sort of talked about why are you talking about all the things you can't do? Why run on all the things you cannot do as president? You run for what you can do, run for what you want to do, run for what you strive to do. And we're not going to succeed as a party unless we do that. And that was one kind of that's the case for the strong policy proposal for the grandeur. And then Buttigieg, I think, wasn't Buttigieg didn't um, he wasn't dismissing that. But he, I thought, outlined the true crisis that we have in America, which is there's a structural crisis, which is that our political system is incapable because of a variety of forces, gerrymandering, the the non-representativeness of the Senate, the filibuster, uh, the separation of legitimacy between the legislative branch and the executive branch, the kind of dueling legitimacies there that make it very, very hard for anything to actually get done if you have grand policy goals. It's too easy to, to block them. And I think Buttigieg's point is like you can't get to these things unless you get to the structural issues, which which he's totally right about, although I'm I'm somewhat despairing that he or anyone else can make that change. Uh, but I did. I thought well, that was like the most important framing. Right. So he's talking about structural reform. He means our political system. And right. Warren talks about structural reform in terms of the economic aspect of our political system. You know, right. she also right, shares, she, I think, if you made a checklist of his particular structural fixes, she would share most of them. But it's a matter of emphasis. Right. Where Buttigieg says, like, we always make these political reforms take a back seat because they're not very sexy. But. I'm going to prioritize them because that's how we get a better future. Well, also, it's a cart horse thing, which is uh, Warren, even though she does share those, you're exactly right. It's a matter of emphasis. And you can talk about the cart all day, but the cart's not going to go anywhere if you don't have the horse. And so Buttigieg is talking talking horse. But it then comes to this really, uh, to me, interesting question, which is, the absolute refusal to to accept any of the kind of realities of the screwed up structure in one section uh, as a candidate sends, it seems to me, a signal to voters, look, I don't care how things break out. I just know that candidate X, who's been going on and on and on and on about this this idea, is going to be in there doing that, whatever the situation is. It's it, Essentially, the analogy is Donald Trump and the wall. Yeah, yeah, the wall is never going to be built. But boy, I know that Donald Trump is going to be the maximalist on immigration. So whatever's going on, I know he'll be in there on this issue I care about, having the most maximalist position. And I wonder if that's not part of what's happening here. What somebody pointed out to me, a Democratic veteran said, yeah, but the difference between the wall and health care is the people that actually have health care now, mm-hmm. they could they could not care about the details of whether Mexico is going to pay or whether the wall is ever going to be built or anything like that and use this as a signal to decl- to feel something about Donald Trump. In this case, the the policies and whatever policies actually end up happening will affect people who are in unions with pretty good benefits, people who have private insurance, people who are in Medicare Advantage, uh, who worry that a Medicare for all might mess with the system they've got, people who are in regular Medicare. So th- that that changes my analogy and makes it imperfect. Emily, going back to your original um, point that, that the framing caused a, an acceleration of difference and a and a sort of a bit of toxicity on the stage as everyone was fighting over these small distinctions. Why is it that none of the candidates has chosen to be the uh, I'm praising I'm praising my my opponents we're all such strong, you know, that you were Vice President Biden was such a good vice president, uh 
Senator Harris is such a great senator. Elizabeth Warren, you were such a champion of great policy ideas. Why isn't anyone taking that high-minded road? It seems like that's a that's a space to occupy. Well, Warren did it in her opening, and so did Biden. She said, I'll work my heart out for whoever wins. And Biden said, look at the diversity on this stage. That's America. So they had their kind of moment of making that taking that higher road. But then in the course of the debate, you have to fight it out, right? Because like you're on a stage, you have to try to elevate your ideas and proposals, and you end up arguing over these relatively minor differences. I mean, the thing that I found intensely frustrating was this, fr- this focus on decriminalizing border crossings. Not going to happen doesn't really affect that many people, since most people are not prosecuted with a misdemeanor for crossing the border. It's treated as a civil infraction, immigration infraction, and they're sent back. That's how this works most of the time. And yes, Trump's family separation policy has invoked the criminal um, offense of crossing the border, but it's not dependent on it. So I just feel like there was way much attention to that issue and that you could have watched these debates or, or sort of flickered in and out of them and thought that like, the Democratic Party's agenda is to decriminalize the border, take away health, your private health insurance without making it clear that there's going to be some better affordable alternative. And I don't know, like also take away your guns, maybe that got a lot of attention. It just felt like the really popular issues that helped win in 2018 were somehow being sidelined. Well, I think... Uh... I think that can be true, and it can also be a great test for what the general election is going to be like. Because if uh, if people didn't like the frame of this debate, the frame that Donald Trump is going to try and put on things and the chaos that he's going to sow uh, are going to create a, a disrupted environment. And it seems to me that anybody who wants to run against Donald Trump needs to know how to take the hairball they've been thrown, quickly strip it of the hair, and then tee up the ball in their own fashion. That that is, in fact, a crucial skill, as kooky and nutty and weird and shouldn't be this way as it may be, that that's actually going to have to be a skill of one of the candidates. And what surprised me was, um, to your point about minor differences, I think Matt Iglesias made this point on immigration. Uh, He basically said, it was silly to like waste all that time on that debate because it's a minor thing. More importantly, people should talk about the DREAM Act and some kind of way to deal with past citizenship or otherwise. The 10 million who are long-term undocumented uh, Americans talk about President Trump's policies squandering America's leading role as a destination for um, foreign-born students and also um, talk about the future of legal immigration. Biden kind of haltingly tried to do that and uh, made that comment about PhDs and then Booker hit him. But I think that, that the the skill for grabbing something that's way the hell over here and reminding, A, what the real questions right. are, answering right. them, but, and then also adding a little lift and right. hope and American story to it and some music and yeah. violins. Yeah, yeah, totally that's a great point, point John. My, one of my impressions leaving this debate was actually that I would be very glad if we washed out the set of middle candidates, the Tim Ryans, the Bullocks, the Hickenloopers, the Bennetts, uh, but kept... Uh, the sort of weirdo one-issue candidate. So if we kept Yang, kept Jay Inslee, kept Marion oh, no, Williamson. Please, no. They're, can you just leave her out they're of bringing, Let's trade her the, for Steve Bullock and then no, can go ahead. No, 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 oh, or, no. Or Michael Bennett. No, so they're boring. they're bringing, well, you, you can have, you can have Bennett or Bullock. You get, can get one of those I straight Bullock. talking Westerners. But I like having, 
I, I think, especially with Inslee and also with Yang, too, the issues that they're raising are real issues. And they're talking about them in a kind of good, obsessive, useful way. And I'm not saying that they, those issues are going to win the day. I mean, God knows Inslee has to. Climate has to win at some point or we're all fucked. But, uh, but it's nice to have them there. And they are the, – the discussions they're having are much more substantive and valuable than actually the, the tyranny of small differences fights over Medicare for all versus public option versus whatever. John is nodding. I couldn't nod more uh, vigorously. And two other things. One, I've, I think it would be interesting if some candidate as a Hail Mary decided to run uh, a cabinet candidacy, since we know personnel is so important. And because, let's say, criminal justice issues, the way a candidate really is going to uh, handle criminal justice issues is if they say, look, I care deeply about this and there are these disparities in the system and these things that need to be fixed. As a president, I'm going to be pinned down by a million other things. So I'm putting X in charge of it. And we share the same values and ideals. And I'm going to check in on X every now and again. But X is super passionate about this issue. And they're going to go run with it. And there's you do that with criminal justice reform. You do it with the economy and um, managing capitalism or whatever they want to call it, income inequality, so forth and so on. And you name, as a part of your campaign, the people you would have and the criteria you would set. That's actually the way the job works. And I could think and imagine it would be a way that politically it would be interesting. And then one, one other stupid idea nobody will like, which is I think that the 10 smartest people about healthcare, reporters and analysts should like form a flash mob and spend some time either on Twitter or Slack basically teeing up the five to 10 biggest puzzles the candidates needs to solve with their with their ideas and also maybe doing a little explaining and informing of what the actual crucial questions are in healthcare that a president can affect. Um, and then everybody can go read that and they'll be informed. Speaking of healthcare policy experts, Sarah Cliff was on Twitter framing some questions about healthcare policy. And she, one of them was to ask the candidates which country's current healthcare system they view as a potential model for the United States. I am desperate for someone to ask them that and then to just like retire some of the more boring details from this discussion. I just can't believe that when other countries have effectively figured out how to contain costs and cover everybody with some basic health insurance that seems to like get them the same kind of results that we get here for twice as much money that we're like still endlessly talking about this. You well, really think that would solve the problem? No. That would not solve the problem, Emily. I don't think it would solve the whole problem, but I feel like it would shortcut a lot of these like distinctions with minor differences that we get completely hung up on. Like the basics are, you know, keep the costs down so that we don't end up spending 20% of GDP on healthcare, which we're already close to, and make sure to give everybody basic coverage. Okay, how do you do yeah. that? Yeah. Okay, yeah. yes, yeah, okay, yeah, out. how do you do that? So, like, go pick one, Canada, France, I know, whatever. okay, how do you do that in the United, how do you do it know, in the United that's... States with the system that we have and with the switching costs and with people's expectations and with employer-based care and, and with, with the, the power of contracts. the lobbying and the union contracts and the people and Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, it's like, it's not a, it's not a simple, oh, these guys have done it. We just need to imitate it. Also, U.S. is the f f source of so much of the kind of medical research and we're that helps, you know, drive up costs here and we end up subsidizing the rest of the world. There are a billion of those issues. It's not, you can't just say we want to be Switzerland. Really? Yeah, It'd totally. be so much better <laughs> if that was the case. I like I was, my answer. I just don't want to have another election dominated by this issue. Well, but it's I guess why... that's just the way it's going to be. But I think you're, you are... 
speaking to something that's incredibly powerful in two different ways. One is, I think there are other there are people who feel what you feel in the helplessness, which is to say they they are happy to have a conversation about healthcare, but they want a, a path towards some light and some yes. sense of control over the the topic. And it's why I had my dumb idea about the flash mob because. Most of what people feel makes people feel so at sea about this issue is they hear talk about it and it gets more confusing rather than less. And it does seem to me that one of the jobs that actually a president does have to do uh, and that these debates are a pretty good test of is framing and lifting and settling the audience about basically healthcare is about cost, quality and coverage. And the more you move one, the more it affects the other. And so every time you hear somebody say everybody's going to get covered, then the big question is, okay, but what about cost and quality? So how are you going to keep costs down and how are you going to make sure people aren't in long lines or they, they can only go to doctors who are in network and those doctors have all been trained at a correspondence course, right? So if somebody who, need, who can frame the question will give voters some control and I think then answer your feeling about, oh, I don't want to go through this kind of round and round the mulberry bush again. Um, and also, by the way, frame it and say the reason this is important is because this goes to a core American value. Who are we? Do we believe it's a right? Do we believe that millions and millions and millions of people without insurance is a good thing to have in a society where we aspire to be something more than just living in the state of nature? To, to frame it in a values context so that people know why they should care about it in their, in their heart as opposed to just in their brains. All right. Let's leave the debates there. We will have many more debates, hopefully with many fewer candidates coming up. Slate Plus members, you get so much good stuff for being a Slate Plus member, but notably, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts, and you can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. It's just $35 for the first year, and today we're going to talk about games, great games, games we're playing, games people play uh, that uh, maybe you can incorporate into your life. So uh, we will talk about that during Slate Plus. The president is nominating John Ratcliffe to be director of national intelligence after pushing out Dan Coats from that position. Coates is one of the few reasonable adults who was left in the administration. Ratcliffe, known principally to Fox News viewers, has, uh, it is fair to say, practically no experience in intelligence. He's been in the House for about five years, four or five years. He's had one year on the Intelligence Committee. Importantly, that year was a year that contained last week's questioning of Robert Mueller, which he uh, made a good audition tape for the president during that. And he had a year as an anti-terrorism prosecutor, that he, a year that he seems to have significantly embellished when he described the work he did. I think it's safe to say he's been appointed because he's a partisan hack who has defended the president every turn. He's embraced Trump's conspiracy theories about the uh, deep state. He has pitbulled Robert Mueller in hearings and on Fox. He is the, I believe, is the source of the um, claim that there's an FBI secret society that was out to get Trump. He's a different kind of cat than previous directors of national intelligence. So, Emily, why is it unsettling that we might have him as head of DNI, there are lots of partisans up and down this administration, lots of people who are, who are, uh, you know, Trump at all costs, do what, do the president's bidding. Why is it unsettling to have someone in this position like that? Well, I think even to date, we've had leaders of the FBI and the intelligence services who don't seem terribly political and partisan in their presentations and motivations. And so, you know, Christopher Ray, who's the head of the FBI, 
has warned about Russian threats um, pertaining to the elections. That's just one example. I think Dan Coats has also seemed like a straight shooter on these questions. The idea that you could have someone in this incredibly sensitive post who's interested in, you know, cooking the intelligence in some way or ignoring reports that are disadvantageous to President Trump and promoting theories, even if they're conspiracy theories that he thinks will help the president, that's scary. And then when you think of actually turning the intelligence services against political enemies, well, then we're back to like J. Edgar Hoover in the FBI era, uh, an era which we very deliberately left behind in the 1970s, in part by making sure that the people who were in charge of these intelligence divisions had these long, rich resumes from within the intelligence services or other parts of the government that made you feel like they had such deep experience. They would understand the value of listening to the career professionals who do this work. And that seems like something we could be losing with John Ratcliffe in this like very important particular context. I uh, Just to add to that, um, I think it's unsettling in the position, in the specific position, and then I think it's unsettling in what it says about uh, the president's hiring process. And when we think about hiring process, we have to remember that a lot of his supporters said within electing him and then also in defending him now, he's a business guy, that this is his great um, quality. I think you would talk to people who are in businesses and running large organizations who would say, no, he was the head of a family business, which is a very different kind of thing. It, it does, it's, not, it's, it's not in the same category of the kind of business skills running a large organization that could be applicable to the presidency. But I think if we step back and look at what the D director of national intelligence does is created in the wake of 9-11 when uh, the 9-11 commission said there was a failure of imagination on the part of the intelligence agencies in presenting the intelligence in such a way that would make decision makers realize that the al-Qaeda threat was as, as uh, significant as it was, that there needed to be more coordination among all the many intelligence agencies to connect the dots. So this is a this job is nonpartisan uh, for a key reason to keep everybody safe and from getting killed. So this needs to be of all jobs in the world squeezed of of baloney and focus really on the really tough stuff. And the tough stuff is not oh here comes a bad guy over the over the transom, but here's the way cyber could uh, change all the blood types in a military hospital and get everybody killed. Here's the way cyber can shut down the electric grid. Jesus, um, I never thought about that. And That's have, fucked up. That's yeah. crazy. So yeah. you have, and and so it is a, so uh, the reason I'm raising the stakes on the job is this is the central number one priority of any president, which is keeping people safe. And this job has a very specific set of qualifications, managerial quali qualifications, coordinating qualifications, and po political um, success on Fox TV is number nine million of the the list of qualifications required for this job, and so the president in this instance has a free shot here. It's not like anybody's forcing this on him. He's choosing of his own to say, "I am going to use my skills as a business person and manager to name somebody who does not meet the requirements of the job, a job that is the highest, one of the highest stakes positions." Because if you get something wrong, there will really be a problem in the government. And also, I should say one final thing, which is this is reflective of the overall personnel management in the entire administration. The, the transition team worked on filling lots of the positions at the beginning of the Trump administration, and they essentially threw out all of that work. 
And we've seen this in this pell-mell, weird conveyor belt system of top managers in the administration, uh, which has led to systemic problems throughout the administration because there's just simple business practices that aren't being implemented, let alone traditional White House practices. I think there's a there's a further danger with somebody like this. And we, we've seen this happen at the EPA. I think we're probably seeing it at the Department of Interior, at Commerce, Department of Agriculture, is that when you bring in someone whose attitude toward the work that he's doing, the agencies he's overseeing, is doubtful, skeptical, undermining, subversive, you demoralize people, they leave. And it's not simply that the president may be getting bad intelligence or he may be getting intelligence that he wants to hear under a scenario like that. It's that the people who are going to be supplying the intelligence are going to become worse and they're going to become worse at their job. They're going to leave, that you're going to gut a, a generation of people and you're going to undermine these institutions. And so that even if, if you if you even if you replace this bad leadership or this this dishonest leadership at some point, you've planted bad seeds, the harvest will be terrible later, and the institution has been significantly weakened for the long run. And so 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 it's it isn't it's, 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 it's you want to believe, oh well you just have this one bad person and you get rid of them and it's it's okay. But it's not like that because they 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 have caused damage for a generation. It, you're, it's almost like you're reading the transcript of a conversation I just had of somebody who was very, very, very senior in the CIA who made precisely that point. And the secondary point they made is that when you abuse the intelligence agencies, and remember, the president has uh, ridiculed the intelligence agencies as recently as a few months ago in their assessment of Iran, North Korea, ISIS, and Russia. Uh, the, guy, the people, the men and women who are doing their work, which requires diligence, out of the limelight, patient, you know, they basically, because they're human, as this person was explaining it, they're like not as rigorous in their job. And that rigor is required at 100 percent level to even be able to get half of these things right. Is there any chance that Ratcliffe goes down? Yeah. Because there some enough Republicans have pause about him? I think it's certainly possible because, A, the seriousness, B, the the sort of what is the test, you know, I mean, you can imagine some test questions in hearings about specific policy items uh, and whether, you know, he passes that test in open hearings could create a pretext for, uh, you know, moving his nomination on to and then naming somebody else. They did that with at the, with, at the Department of Defense. They did it with Stephen Moore and the Fed and stuff. So the Senate has done this with previous Trump picks. I suspect, Emily, that if he goes down, it's it won't be a direct assault. It'll be sort of the sideways assault on the fact that he's a, has embellished his career. That there will be examples of his embellishment, and that will be yes, that used against bad. him, and that, and that that will be the the way to get him out. One tiny, tiny thing I should add to balance this out a little bit is Gina Haspel, who is the head of the CIA, gets pretty strong marks uh, from a lot of people in different ideological camps for doing the meat and potatoes, uh, bread and butter, choose your food metaphor work of the CIA, um, and and she was a, a Trump pick, so. Um, in that case, it seems to have been uh, a really solid pick of a career person at the CIA. Well, it's interesting, though, because when you look back at the criticism of Gina Haspel at her nomination, it had to do with the role she was alleged to have played in um, the war on terror, right? And like authorizing or being in some way part of uh, torturing some of the suspects then. But no one ever questioned that like she was from deep within the intelligence committee and like had in her bones her history and experience in that job. The idea was like in that role, she had done 
um, bad things that meant she shouldn't be elevated. So this is a different kind of critique, right? This is like the Fox News gets you to the White House, not like the fact that you went along with torture practices under George W. Bush. Yeah, I I was just mentioning just if if you look at two people that Trump has picked for top positions in the intelligence, having made the case I did about Ratcliffe being unsuitable for the job. Haspel was suitable for the job, though people had debates about the way she may have carried it out in the past. So yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Can we linger for a second on the weirdness of this whole Fox News audition? It is so bizarre that that the way you just put yourself in position to be uh, in the inner circle is just to go on Fox and say foxy Trumpy things and that you do that enough and, and all of a sudden you're, you know, you could be... You, practically be secretary of state yeah i i I actually think someone someone some canny person should purely as a work of performance art should start should should be someone on the left and be be like you know what i've realized that president trump really is a strong leader like start to go on fox as a guest as a a disaffected democrat who like really you know understands that trump has changed the game and how what a great leader he is and just just sort of say all this stuff that that they know is going to endear them to Trump would be he is so susceptible to that form of of public foxy flattery that it would work. Can't wait uh, to see someone try that. This episode of the Gabfest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister, or friend, an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The heat wave that has immiserated Europe for weeks is finally easing. Much of the U.S. has also suffered a terrible, horrible, hot and humid July. It is pretty clear that this is climate change in action. A shift to jet stream, melting Arctic, more CO2 holding in heat. They're all contributing to the acceleration of these heat waves and the intensity of them and the length of them. Alaska, for example, has not been freezing, has not been under 32 degrees Fahrenheit anywhere since June, which is a record. That is a remarkable 
in any of their 300 meteorological stations. So, and that's got to matter for like ice and right. right. Well, the, <laughs> the main places is mattering is Greenland. That's got to be bad. The Greenland, the yes. Greenland ice cap is melting at a stunning rate. When they, when you look at the actual numbers, the amount of of ice that is melting off of it and is going into the ocean and is contributing to sea level rise, to changes in, in salinity, to changes in ocean temperature, to changes in weather patterns. It's enormous. And that's going to be the most presumably disastrous disastrous accelerant of sea level rise and of climate change is the Greenland ice sheet um, melting very more quickly. And it's, you know, in, in Greenland, temperatures are reaching in the 80s. Um, so, Emily, what why well why i don't know why i don't have a question i mean it's like what i I, maybe i don't even have a question yikes 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 yeah so how how is how as citizens are we supposed to 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 think about these heat waves and survive them because it, it actually feels like it's it's going to be difficult to even live in certain parts of the world now Right. Well, I think there's a few different levels to answer that on. I mean, on the political level, it's about really giving priority to this issue and taking it seriously and not imagining that like some uh, something's going to save us or that this is something that's so far down the road that we don't really have to think about it. I mean, it feels like the changes in the actual weather should make it more immediate for people. And then the other thing I keep thinking about is how the climate of regions is just changing. So, you know, it used to be that if you lived in the mid-Atlantic states in the United States, like you could count on like, you know, some unpleasant days in the summer, but like you might be able to get by without air conditioning if you lived in New England, like probably would not go over 90 and Um, All the things that go along with the climate, like, you know, what the power grid has to be prepared for, what the water temperature is at the ocean or the lake, how many mosquitoes around, all those things were like pretty reliable. And now they all feel like they're shifting. And of course, the most affected region in our country seems like it would be the southern part of the United States, which could just become unbearably hot. And then there's the stress on our infrastructure, if everybody has to have air conditioning on all the time, like, can the power grid really handle that? And what do we do to prepare for that? So there's like the international, national political ramifications, and then the regional or local ones. Well, I mean, also, sorry, not to not to be like first world problem kind of dismissal of you, but the US people are rich, they're able to afford air conditioning at the moment. Think about these places in the Middle East where temperatures are getting into the 120 degrees, where in Africa, where where crop, you know, where where agriculture is being devastated by the change in climate and and the desertification of certain areas, uh, where you know areas of fishing, where the fishing stocks have been completely depleted. I mean, we, I think the reason the reason this is not a crisis, the reason that Americans have not actually responded in a crisis fashion, is that basically it's it's you can totally almost literally insulate yourself. You turn the air conditioning on, the air conditioning goes on. I don't think. You know, why is climate change not real to Donald Trump? Donald Trump is never hot unless he wants to be. Donald Trump is in air conditioning all the time. People in America do not have to suffer, for the most part, the, the, the damage of this climate. And, and so they don't, they don't feel it. Well, I totally think you're right to emphasize the problems in those 
in the southern hemisphere in poorer countries absolutely if you're thinking internationally i don't think it's true though that everybody's unaffected i mean the more money you have the less you can choose to be affected but i think people are noticing these changes around them and to the extent that americans do start to like wake up and smell the coffee on this issue it will be in part because of that it's one of those issues and uh, and i can't remember Remember, David, whether you you listed the refugee crisis, but uh, that that comes as a result of people leaving places that have been uh, scorched to a cinder by uh, the rising right. temperatures. Um, when you think of what the job of a president is and why we go through this thing every four years, this is the kind of issue that um, only sort of you can direct collective action. It, ha- it requires collective action. And you can only do it if somebody leads and rallies a nation. And so this is one where it's not so much the solutions. I mean, those are interesting and putting a price on carbon and all these other specific kinds of solutions are really interesting and worth talking about. But it's also how – and Jay Inslee is obviously trying to do this in a fashion. But how you use the other skills of having a public platform – to cajole the public, to cajole private industry, to uh, work with other nations. You know, when when you think about the knock-on effects of climate change in other countries and the, and then the, the things that will then come back on America in any number of different ways, both in terms of migrants and refugees to the country itself, what migrants and refugees do to European trading partners that change the economy for U.S. goods, all kinds of other things. You you can imagine using a version of what the Bush administration used about terrorism, which is if you don't deal with it over there, it's coming over here. The final thing I'd point out is I noticed that Moody's, which when people hear that, they'll remember the the financial crisis when Moody's was saying that mortgage-backed securities were good as cash and then they turned out not to be. But let's jump over that. Moody's has now... bought a climate firm because they're going to start doing bond ratings of cities and whether those bonds are are worth worthless or or I guess just evaluating those bonds based on the climate effects of the city. So presumably like Miami, Miami for example. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just it, it just the sort of the way in which the private enterprises are reacting to climate change as a real thing even if uh, right. some politicians still don't. Yeah, I mean I that's well that I that is a small bit of hope. If the market, but is probably fortunate. too slow, right? It's slow, and it also it's going to be marginal. It's going to be in the places where there's a huge amount of investment, where the money really matters, and not in the places where there, are, uh, you know, 300 million people who are starving, who are without water. I mean, I've grown incredibly disillusioned recently about the capacity for group collective action. I just think that it's too easy not to do it, and 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 it's too easy if you do even if you do determine you're going to do something, it's too easy for for another country to cheat and for another country not to do it. And also there there's so much money invested in the petrochemical, the oil and gas and in the carbon emitting industries. And that, that's a hugely powerful force and there isn't a countervailing force against it. And so I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly disillusioned. I've kind of come to the, insofar as we ever do get a reaction, it's going to be too late. We're going to, it's going to be too far past the point of no return. And so I, I'm, I've gone to the only geoengineering or some miracle of science is going to save us now. It's not going to be Mary. politicians. It's not going to be collective unified action. It's going to be the capacity for action divided world does not exist. It, it is there's too much, too many forces against it. And so it's going to have to be like, OK, some, you know, some some 
somebody india decides to throw up a huge amount of stuff into the atmosphere to block sunlight and that cools the planet three degrees and has all these other terrible effects but <laughs> but but they're going to do it on their own or there's going or someone's going to have a miracle some miracle miracle energy cure that is that's going to be so valuable that it's going to switch the economy and, and then in in and what, what what's appealing about that idea to the extent that i've thought about it in 10 seconds is in that sense, looking to l- political leaders as the solution is actually a diversion from placing your energies and focus uh, where it should lie, which is in your Hail Mary uh, approach. Well, or in scientific investment. But, right. but wait a sorry, second. Ahead, Emily, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, no, I was just going to make that point. Like, It seems like if you're going to go for the Hail Mary, then you have to care the most about what governments are creating the research and development and investment to make that plausible because we don't know where it's coming from. Well, why couldn't you get – instead of everybody building rocket ships to go to the moon, and there's probably some great climate benefit to that that I don't know, in which case um, somebody can educate me. But instead of spending billions to um, uh, send rockets to the moon – for those private, very wealthy people who are doing it, uh, why can't they throw that money at a, a, a climate race? You know, a race to the $2 billion prize for coming up with David's solution. I mean, I think that's fine. I think putting this onto private enterprise just seems unrealistic to me, given that when we've had other big problems like this, that that foundation for basic science has come from government. Right, right. And, what, right, and, what's, and the one place where there's so many ways that the Trump administration is undermining this, but one of the places they're really undermining it is shifting resources away from research into alternative energies and subsidies for alternative energies and subsidies for that research where, you know, they could really make a difference. Yeah. I'm not saying, I'm not saying don't do it at all. I'm just saying in a world of, of uh, constipation at the government level, this would provide some hope for those who seek tiny little rays of light. Yeah, that makes sense. On the other hand, I feel like when we start putting all our marbles in, no, that's like a very mixed metaphor. But if if you start emphasizing the Hail Mary pass and it seems like it could come from anywhere, then you're sort of letting ourselves yeah. off the hook yes. of any yes. kind of yeah. political right. collective all action. Right. That makes me very yeah, nervous. Right. Yes. Sorry, guys. You're right. You're right. All right. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you are huddled in a cool air-conditioned bar, Emily Bazelon, having an extremely frosty mug of beer. What are you going to be chattering about? I am really interested this week in a surprising new book coming out in September, I think, from Jack Goldsmith. So Jack Goldsmith is a Harvard Law professor who's fairly conservative. He worked in the Justice Department in the Office of Legal Counsel in the Bush administration, uh, helped start lawfare, writes many things they disagree with, including about the Mueller investigation. His book is about none of that. He has a new book called In Hoffa's Shadow that is this like really striking tale of his um, stepfather's involvement in the career of Jimmy Hoffa. His stepfather was basically Hoffa's adopted son, had like a long checkered history uh, of, you know, all of the sort of twists and turns of Hoffa taking over the Teamsters and then having these alleged ties with the mob and then Hoffa disappearing. This guy, Chucky O'Brien, um, was like in the middle of all of that. And so Goldsmith has had many conversations with him and really tried to investigate his stepfather's role in Hoffa's disappearance. And it's just this long and winding tale of the Teamsters and Hoffa in the 50s and 60s. Um, just really interesting. So it's called In Hoffa's Shadow by Jack Goldsmith. I'm pretty sure the pub date is sometime in September. 
I feel like Chucky O'Brien threw a no-hitter on the night of the New, of the New York City brownout in uh, <laughs> July 14th, 1974. I'm telling yeah. you, that, <laughs> that is his name, that, though I hear you. That guy at the end of the bar, Chucky O'Brien, he can throw a manhole cover 50 feet. Okay. John, <laughs> what is your... Uh, uh, my chatter is, is actually related to the, uh, or unexpectedly related to the, the third topic, which is the piece by Tyler Cowan and Patrick Collison um, in the Atlantic on uh, the call for a new need, a need for a new science of progress. And essentially, the argument is that there are a bunch of people studying what leads to progress in a bunch of different fields, but that there should be a single field devoted to um, and a sort of broad-based intellectual movement focused on understanding the dynamics of progress and and Love basically it. finding out how to speed it up. Love so it. what are the conditions that, are, that have worked throughout history and that exist now in places where there's been measurable progress and ideas in human um, uh, living? And then how do you replicate that and, and be systematic and intentional about that as you try to do this? Because as they point out, um, the, the remaining items on the to-do list include curing all diseases, solving climate change, enabling most of the world's population to live comfortably, um, how to predict or mitigate natural disasters, which presumably would become more of the moment as climate change gets worse. Uh, and also there are other things that are less urgent, but travel and um, education that are, well, education is quite urgent, but, um, but that to make it a specific science of studying the ecosystems that create progress. And so I'm really into it in part also because when you study, they do, people do this a lot in business, but um, there are so many myths of what creates and allows for progress in various institutions. And one of the big ones is in the presidency where people think like, oh, if we just got a businessman in there, which, which is based on a kind of myth that um, if you had a study of progress and what creates the conditions of progress, you would learn um, that it's actually teams, you know, so as uh, Max Steyer likes to put it, more of an Avengers model than as a Superman model. And if you change the way you think about progress, uh, it might sort for better kinds of solutions. I love it. Well, anything Tyler does, I endorse, but that sounds doubly endorsable. Uh, I have two chatters. I was just going to do one, but then the news snuck up on me. So my first chatter is... If you have not yet seen the Tiny Desk concert that Lizzo did at NPR last week, stop whatever you're doing and go watch it. It is the most delightful 15 minutes you will spend this week. She is she's a you know great musician, unbelievably charming and charismatic, and a just scintillating performer. Uh, funny, it's it's seen an artist at the height of her powers. And filled with so much joy is great. Have you guys have you guys watched this? No, Emily. No. Do you have to watch it, or can you listen? Oh, you should totally you watch, to watch it. She is, she okay. is a revelation. She's she's so fun. Um, so Lizzo's Tiny Desk concert, and then just <laughs> everyone uh, in in my whole uh, social network yesterday alerted me to this crazy story in the New York Times about Jeffrey Epstein. The mm. Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, was oh attempting at his New Mexico ranch. He wished to uh, create a cadre of, uh, of mini Epsteins, and he was going to dragoon dozens of women to bear his children. And 
and it was part of his his general association of himself with scientists and transhumanism, this idea that you can live forever. He also had his his head and he wants to have his head and penis frozen, although I do not think that is going to happen to him at this point. But but one of the schemes was to propagate himself by propagating himself by having knocking up a whole bunch of women who were who he saw as purely as vessels for this. And his model was something called the Repository for Germinal Choice, which is a sperm bank for Nobel Prize winners and other other accomplished men that existed in Southern California from 1980 until 1999. And uh, it was a very real sperm bank. And, and Epstein seems to have been inspired by it. And the reason that this came to me is that I wrote a book about the repository. And it like I can't tell, but Epstein's interest seems to have coincided with my starting to write about it. So if I'm responsible, I apologize. <laughs> if I'm responsible <laughs> for him becoming aware of the repository, I apologize. But um, but I, if you have not learned the story of the repository for Journal Choice, the Nobel Prize Sperm Bank, it is worth it. Uh, I will, if you if you uh, you know, I have I wrote a book about it. There's also a Slate project about it. It's one of the craziest, most ambitious loony experiments in human genetic engineering that ever happened and it was real and it's fucking weird and the products of it live among us and are you know now young adults and you should uh, you know Je- jeffrey epstein is not the only person who's ever been enraptured by it it is it is a truly bizarre story and weird people get infatuated with it Seems to me that if you think that you're the person whose seed is supposed to repopulate mm-hmm. the world, you are like absolutely disqualified yep. immediately. Exa- absolutely disqualified. <laughs> and and actually, Epstein did not take the lesson of the, the repository was founded by a guy named Robert Graham, who was himself a very accomplished inventor. He invented chatterproof plastic eyeglasses. But Graham did not use his own sperm. He thought, oh, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not worthy. He went and recruited other men. Uh, it was it was Epstein had a different monomaniacal narcissistic take on it. And I in the course of my reporting uh, on sperm, do- I ended up doing a lot of work on sperm donors and meeting a ton of sperm donors. And there is a definitely there is a type that exists of man who goes from sperm bank to sperm bank as a donor and attempts to, you know, win the evolutionary game, as one of them put it to me, by fathering children in as many places and as many ways as they can. And it's, it is those people are so creepy it is they are they are the most creepy people you will ever meet and epstein's clearly it falls in that category it's this combination of narcissism and sort of scientific like a scientific narcissism that is deeply disturbing to run across in a human being listener chatters uh great listener chatters again this week so you should tweet them to us at, at @slategabfest. And uh, uh, one that we are going to talk about today briefly is from at David Amon. And David Amon points us to an article in Vice called "I Found New York City's In-N-Out Burger and Solved the Mystery of How It Got There." And this is a, this is a briefly viral story from the last uh, couple of weeks, where there was a on the street in Queens was a pristine In-N-Out Burger. And the question is, how could an In-N-Out <laughs> Burger be on the street of Queens? Because there is no In-N-Out Burger franchise within 2,000 miles of Queens. So how did it get there? Like and an actual hamburger was an found actual on the street? Burger, Can you just explain? Yeah, an actual like burger wrapped up? wrapped up in perfect wrapping, not looking gross, not looking wounded, just sitting on the street huh. in Queens. And, as and if it fell from the sky. As if it fell from the sky. And, and so it was found. And then this person who found it and chronicled it 
then figured out where it came from. And the story of how he figured out where it came from is quite funny and charming, and you should check it out. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Danielle Hewitt engineered us today here in Washington. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is the managing producer. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Please join us in St. Paul, Minnesota, September 18th for our live show. There are still some tickets left. Go to slate.com slash live. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Topic today proposed by none other than Emily Bazelon, J.D. Esquire, is... Is can you be an Esquire? Are the you most an Esquire? Useless letters ever. Are you, what makes uh, you an Esquire? I don't know. I mean, I, uh, that's a good question. If you were because I have passed the bar, but I am currently retired so you from say. the bar because I don't want to pay my bar dues. So I don't know. That seems like maybe not. What is Emily Bazelon Esquire retired? What does it take to reinstate your bar membership? Do you have to take the test again, or you just fire up the money? I think I just have to pay again. But then maybe I'd also have to start getting my CLE credits, continuing legal education. I don't know. I'm not sure what the requirements are in Connecticut, which is the place where my bar membership is slightly more active than Massachusetts. In Connecticut, I still get emails a couple times a year. I've just tried to re-up my global entry Um by the way, if anybody, this is a public service announcement, <laughs> anybody out there who has to re-up their global entry or TSA pre, do it well advance of the in well in advance of the expiration date because of the government shutdown. There's a huge backlog, and so also they've changed the criteria. And to get it renewed, you have to perform a seven-act play in pool floaties. It's very difficult. So that's John's public service announcement. <laughs> should have done that during the regular show, not Slate Plus segment. Anyway, our Slate Plus segment uh, proposed by. Emily Bazelon, Esquire, retired, is uh, about games that we are playing, games we've cottoned on to, games we like. And uh, Emily, why don't you take it away? I was inspired to propose this segment by a game that I played the other night with um, a whole group of people called Heads Up. Have you guys played this game yet? No. Nope. It's on. Okay, so it's. I, I did not instigate the game. It's probably an app or maybe it's a website. I'm not sure. So they're categories, sort of like celebrity. And the way the game works is like one person puts the phone up to their head and some words appear at the top like David Copperfield. And then everyone else in the room provides clues to uh -huh. the person uh -huh. who can't yeah. see yep. the word yep. Yep. until yep. you guess it. And then you just move on. You try to do as many as possible. Yep. Anyway, it's a really... It's a, it was in whatever, whether it's an app or a website, it's like a way of using your phone that actually adds to the game because you have so many different categories and possibilities available to you. And the way that the, um, the names keep flashing, the words keep flashing using your phone is actually like kind of funny because you have to like move the phone, kind of move your head. And it also, um, just actually was really fun to play. Yes. It looks like it's an app, at least on the iPhone, um, yeah. Yeah. That okay. That's right. interesting. John, do you have a, a game? Uh, well, celebrity. There's a lot of playing of celebrities, and it's a celebrity, and it's so people should know, like, celebrity as I understand it, or as yeah. we play it anyway. Get a bunch of people around, you split up in teams, you cut up pieces of paper, you write down a celebrity on the paper, you put it in a hat, and then each person on a team goes, opens up, and tries to describe to their teammates who they're talking about without saying the right. name. So if it's Richard Nixon, you say Watergate, and your whole team screams yeah. out Richard Nixon. The fun is when you play it multi-generationally, and you have a bunch of young kids who know all of the current pop stars, yeah. and um, and then the person reading the, the 
the uh, clue is, you know, in their 60s, and they have no idea who Jay-Z is. Right. Um, Hold on. Do you play, so first round, you can use whatever word. Second round, you can use one word. Third round, no one. words. Yeah. Right, yeah. That's, but usually we don't get a third round because there's been some dispute over the rules, yeah. and so finally people are in a huff. <laughs> Um, also, it's very, very interesting uh, of the generations and genders and number of drinks you've had, the people who are sticklers about the rules and whether you can pass or not, you shouldn't be allowed to pass. Uh, interesting. You, so you play no passing. No passing we, because that's the fun is when yeah. you're stuck and you've got to do Jay-Z and right. you have to kind of tr- – because if you can pass, you just blow by it and you right. don't do anything hard. Um the, uh, and then there's always some jokester, uh, present company excluded, of course, who puts in something that's like totally random. Like, you know, anyway, there's hilarity ensues. However, the game that we play when we're not playing celebrity is called uh, affectionately in our house or our quarters, uh, the book game. What the book game is, you grab a book off of the shelf, you read a sentence, and everybody in the group has to come up with the GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.